Welcome to the Heal Podcast for all things related to Lyme disease and other chronic illnesses. I'm Mimi McLean, Mama Five, founder of Lyme 360 and a Lyme warrior. Tune in each week to hear from doctors, health practitioners, and experts to hear about their treatments, struggles, and triumphs to help you on your healing journey. I'm here to heal with you. Before we get started with the podcast, I wanted to talk to you about what is in your personal care products and cosmetics. What you put on your skin, which is your largest organ, is just as important as what you consume. Your body immediately absorbs what is on the skin. But did you know that there is limited regulation in the personal care industry? And the last law that was passed was 1938. So the chemicals and ingredients in your products have not been tested for human safety. So for those of you struggling with your health, it is super important to use clean products. Eight years ago, I started using Beauty Counter for my cosmetics and personal care products. They are the leaders in clean, safer products that work. Beauty Counter has done the research and taken the guesswork out of what is safe. Go to lime360.com forward slash beauty counter to learn more. Reach out to me at mimi at lime360.com if you want to learn more or find out what my favorite products are. Hi, welcome to the Heal Podcast. This is Mimi, and today we have Dr. Mark Sue, and he's a doctor specializing in family medicine in Newburyport, New Hampshire. His area of focus include the immune system's function when dealing with tick-borne illnesses. At Personal Care Physicians of Greater Newburyport, they offer an expanded spectrum of services to all categories of needs to treat the whole person and many different types of persons, including chronic complex illness patients. To get my Detox for Lyme checklist, go to lime360.com forward slash detox checklist. Thank you so much, Dr. Sue, for coming on today. I would love to find out how you started focusing on Lyme in your practice. Yeah, so it's kind of, uh, that's, it's a good question. A lot of people, everyone's got a little different story. I think a lot of it is, um, so first of all, I think most everyone who's in Lyme as a practitioner is someone who definitely is open-minded, right? Because it's not part of the conventional medicine thinking or mindset, if you will. Uh, It's not in that world so much. So I think everyone is open-minded to begin with, and I certainly would put myself in that same category. I think also most people, if not everyone as a practitioner in this community are learners, you know, we, and there's a, there's a some level of humility with that comes with that because understanding that there's always more to learn and that the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. experience that. But um, pragmatically, what happened, uh, I, I can say when I was in residency from 2000, 2003 in Boston, I, I only recall one case, coming across one case. There, there might have been a couple more, but nothing really stands out in my mind. When I started working at my first employed practice from 2003 to 2006, what really struck me was patients who told me who were diagnosed with fibromyalgia, right? And they, they would tell me, I know you're, gonna, you're telling me this is a viral infection, but every time I'm on antibiotics... I get better and my other things get better too. My muscle aches or my, you know, tingling or my, my thinking or whatever. And they'd all say, I know you're probably not going to buy that, you know, or it doesn't make sense to you. But um, when I've had antibiotics in the past in these kinds of situations, I get better faster and these other things get better. And, you know, again, I think I'm just open-minded enough to think, well, you know, it, it may not be mainstream to give people antibiotics unnecessarily, but there's no ulterior motive here. No one's trying to scam me of antibiotics. And if it really does make them better, there's plenty of reason to think that I may not understand the whole picture here, or we may not, may not be able to characterize it. So, so I just I just had enough patients that I, um, you know, I took their word from their past track history and observed that it really did make a difference. So I, you know, I drew this connection that fibromyalgia, there's stuff we don't understand, and antibiotics for these folks 
seems to help a lot of them. So then when I went to my second employed practice from 2006 on, as I started to get introduced to functional medicine kind of simultaneously, one of the nurse practitioners here, uh, there who works in our practice now, Michelle Novello, introduced me to ILADS. You know, she knew about it because she had a family member who was dealing with chronic Lyme issues. So that's really where I was really introduced for the first time to the topic of chronic Lyme, you know, or however we want to call it, tick-borne disease is my preference, but Dr. Moziani um, likes to call it hashtag Lyme. There's different terms, but chronic Lyme, that's where I first was introduced to that. And then, um, of course, then it's just a whole different ballgame once you step into the ILADS world and at least get educated about stuff. And the data behind it is just so compelling. It's It's like a complete eyes wide open epiphany moment. I still viscerally remember the emotions and memories I had sitting in that fundamentals course for the first time and thinking to myself, like, how come nobody knows this? Like, how come mm-hmm. I never, like, I, I just can't understand that. And I just patience would flood through my mind as I'm through each lecture thinking, oh, that that's like that person. That's like that person, you know, over and over and over. And then what happened was, uh, you know, the last step of the, the process for me was in 2014 when I started this practice that um, we're in now. And we started using full-time, we're using the specialty labs for Lyme. And I'll be honest with you, we saw so much of it. I, I, you know, all the same questions that everyone has in doubting the whole topic, you know, in the conventional medicine world. And I guess maybe I'm open-minded enough to doubt myself again. And I sat there and said to myself, is this real? Or are all these specialty labs really just a bunch of false positives, like a bunch of people, you know, sort of criticizing the bee? Like, is it really this, this abundant? And so, you know, thankfully we, we stuck it through and just kept on going and, and yeah, I mean, people were getting better. So of course it wasn't like a, you know, a false positive. Dr. Sam Danta had retired around that time from clinical practice, infectious disease specialist down in the Boston area. And so I remember, um, you know, I sent him an email cause we had, um, you know, we'd, we'd had some mutual patients and I just sent him a, a really heartfelt letter of thanks that he's, you know, stuck out there in a, in a difficult culture or subculture for himself, you know, whether regionally or among his subspecialty and said, you've done a lot of work for um, a lot of great work for patients and for the practitioner community. Thank you so much. Just let him know that we were around if he had some patients in the North shore area, whatever, that might need some, some transitions that, you know, I gave him a sense of what we were doing and that we were available. And yeah, there was a heck of a lot more patients than I ever expected. And so we started getting a bunch of calls from a lot of his former patients and, um, from that point forward, it's pretty much just word of mouth. And then, of course, the rest is history, just learning more and learning more. And then that opens more doors of learning. And What percentage of patients would you say are Lyme that come through your door? Well, you know, we're a hybrid uh, practice between primary care and consulting, you know, with Lyme and such. So I think it's, uh, that's a, let's say among the non, you know, primary care patients, among anybody who's got chronic health issues, let's just think in that regard, it's a huge percentage. I mean, it's clearly over I would, I would argue it's clearly over 50, over 50 for sure. Could it be over 50, 80%? I mean, probably, you know, again, it probably comes down to like how each person's diagnosing or defining Lyme disease and such. But yeah, among those who were suspicious of it for, it's the far majority. That's easily Mm -hmm. said. Now, I definitely see that there's different doctors in different camps, even the ones who believe in Lyme and chronic Lyme. Which kind of camp would you put yourself in? Like, you know, are you strictly, you know, like long-term antibiotics, combination, more holistic? Like yeah. if some, if I were to come to you for Lyme, I know it's very personalized, the treatments, but what would you, um, what was kind of your first step? It would it be antibiotics. Would it be more herbals? Would you're typically your, your strategy yeah. for combating somebody who has Lyme? Well, so what I would say is it, the first crux in the road there and you know, to, to 
bring the onion back one level or more is does the patient only have Lyme or tick-borne disease? Okay, I prefer TBD. So does a patient only have TBD or how complicated is the actual picture beyond TBD? Mm-hmm. And we've just found over the last, especially the last few years, like it's it's very rare now. It's extremely rare now for me to only be focusing on treating Lyme or TBD because there's so much more always going on. And so let's just simplify it. If a, if a patient came to me and they've got lab results in front of them, okay, from let's just from a specialty lab that I have confidence in and it is evident or flagrantly positive for, you know, Borrelia and Bartonella, let's say, all right. If they tell me they haven't been treated at all, maybe they were given 10 days of doxy by a primary care person for in the past for a tick bite, right? If it's something as simple as that, and they're they're really gung-ho, like they're laser focused on this is a problem I'm really scared about. I've had family members or friends and yada, yada, yada. And this is you know, that, that's their f- sole focus. Yeah. My approach is here's the different modalities of treatment that I'm familiar with, you know, that I'm comfortable with and I could help you with pharmaceutical, non-pharmaceutical slash herbal. I'll run the gamut and say, Hey, this is what I'm aware of. That's out there as well. You know, there's various people using all kinds of different alternative modalities. There's folks like uh, Dr. Holtorf who are talking about um, treating people with just peptide therapy alone, you know, and the gamut is huge as we all know. And so really, cause it's going to come down to usually a factors of the, the patient's, um, you know, principal preference, you know, pharmaceutical or not pharmaceutical, and then cost. Cost is always mm-hmm. the, big, the big factor. You know, if you're going non-pharmaceutical, then costs are usually going to be a little bit more. And then, of course, if you're talking about, for example, going an all-peptide approach, then, I mean, now you're talking about significant m- amount more money than even, you know, just herbal antimicrobials. But the bigger problem in the much, much more common scenario is that it's not just TBD or hashtag Lyme, you know, it's, it's, it's so much more. And so, you know, I've, I've sort of developed a method for myself that I've now created a name for that we use in our practice called, we call the cures method. And it's a, it's a bigger assessment of a bigger picture of um, trying to account for the complexity of all these problems that are often sequelae of and related or associated with Lyme or actually are co-alpha dogs, if you will, with Lyme mm-hmm. as to what's really causing the issues for patients. So that becomes a whole different story, right? As to, and would you say that's like mold and parasites or is that other things? Yeah, so um, I'm, I would say, so going back to your question about camps, right? I'm definitely in the camp that mold toxins, so that's another semantics topic, but mold toxin illness and tick-borne disease are the two big dogs, if I had to pick mm-hmm. some, right? I mean, that may change over time, but for several years and still now, I would say those are those are the two common and big dog topics that are causing people a wealth of problems. Parasites are just hard to to diagnose, you know, substantiate on paper. So um, it's it's on my list in that sort of three pronged approach with the cures method evaluation that I use, but it hasn't been something that I've been able to feel comfortable putting that much emphasis on right off the bat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's great. Now you have spoken um, previously when we spoke about exposomes. Is that, am I saying that correctly? Um, exposome maybe? Yes. Yes. Can yeah. you tell me about that? I, I'd never heard that word until you mentioned it to me. So I'd love to like kind of dive into that a little bit more, like what that is. Yeah, sure. So, well, I'll, I'll answer it this way. When I talked about this cures method, right? So what it really is about is the three-part equation, I, as I say to patients. So this is, this is how I find myself talking to patients all the time. The big model is three-part equation, self, non-self, and the interface, 
the interface between the self and the non-self, the joining place, the battlefront, right? So um, when, when I say Cures Method, we call it, it's an acronym for Q-Y-E-R-S, standing for Quantifying Your Exposome Resiliency and Self. Resiliency is how resilient is your interface, right? And so there's a lot of data that we can, we can gather. A lot of it is insurance-covered labs for the, each of these three categories. So under the self, we've got topics of your immune system, which is humongous, right? I mean, now, especially with the pandemic, everyone is so much more tuned and aware of the immune system. So you got all kinds of labs we can look at to characterize how strong or weak is a person's immune system. And you wouldn't believe how many people I've uncovered who even healthy people who have immune deficiencies. It's, mm-hmm. it's really impressive, right? I think it kind of speaks to me about how many COVID patients when things happen that you don't expect, there's probably a reason underlying that they didn't know about. So under the self, we got immune system, we got hormones, we've got um, neurotransmitters, we've got genetics, um, you know, the, the list can go on and on. Autoimmune markers too, right? that's kind of like, that's under self. Under the exposome, as you just asked about, that's where, that's really the term for the environment, if you will our exposure, Mm -hmm. our collection of exposures. So we know about genome, right? That's our genetics. We know about microbiome. That's the collection, the ecosystem of bugs in our, in our gut. The exposome is that ecosystem or that, that collection of the repository in our bodies of stuff we've been exposed to all our lives. And so the longer we live naturally, the more exposures that we're, you know, we've accumulated, we've got viruses that we had as kids that they never went away right? Chicken pox and everyone away. That's why people get shingles. Roseola, herpes type one and two, mm-hmm. you know, there's like the warts when you're a little kids that's on your hands, you know? Oh yeah. Right? I mean, parvovirus, slap cheek, we, viruses, toxins, everything that we're exposed to on a day-to-day basis from the air, et cetera. You know, the, the stuff we put on our body with hygiene, clothing, you know, stuff we eat, of course, that's all under what is the exposome. And that's, that's just a plethora arena of what you could be looking at. But again, I'm definitely in the camp that mold toxin illness and tick-borne disease are two of the biggest dogs, if not the two big dogs in the exposome. And then of mm-hmm. course, you got to ask with that resiliency, the interface, you know, 70 to 80% of that has to do with the gut, not actually the respiratory system or skin for most people. And the question is how healthy is the gut, which you and I both know, like gut health is a major part of this whole equation too. So, Right. That's a good explanation. Now, if we could touch on the exposome of, is it detoxing? How how do you address to kind of, I always like to equate that as like your body is a boiling pot of stuff. And at some point it boils over. Right. And so when you get sick, whatever it is, autoimmune, Lyme, Lyme plus, you have to work on reducing that boiling pot. How do you typically work with your patients on doing that? Or how do you suggest it? Is it saunas? Is it other kind of modalities that you do at the office? Yeah, I mean, it varies a lot, right? I mean, one of the big problems with with folks who have these chronic complex illnesses is that there's so many interventions going on at one time, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's direct treatments for, you know, whatever, or if it's detox therapies, they could be pills, they can be liquid, they can be foods, they can be, as you say, actual processes, injections, saunas, whatever, you know, foot baths. I mean, there's a ton of things going on. So again, I don't, I don't so much have like a protocol for anybody and everybody. I mean, the, one of the biggest first steps for, you know, that we practice in our, in our, in how we evaluate patients is trying to ballpark, like how sick is the patient in thirds, like, you know, mild, moderate, severe, 
and usually you'll be able to a person will be, we'd be able to assess how much the person needs to do detox based on their story to date. Like if they're really sensitive to and have a lot of Herx reactions or intolerances or they're in constant pain and brain fog and you know fatigue, et cetera, versus people who they're sort of more naive, right? Meaning they haven't been treated as aggressively by anybody to date or very very long. The symptoms haven't been going on for very long kids, they generally, from my experience, don't need as much detox. They haven't lived long enough to maybe have accumulated as great of an exposure, you know, expose them, sorry. So um, as far as common detoxes go, we use a lot of products from the um, Nutramedics Calden protocol. We use a lot of products from more and more of late from the Picana systems. I've become more, you know, I've heard Dr. Corson and Gedrick talk about it for years, and I just really hadn't gone down that road until in the last uh, year, year plus. So, you know, in terms of sort of ingesting detoxifications, those are, are probably two bigger mainstays. And yeah, there's more and more people using saunas. We've had one in the office. We've, um, with the pandemic, obviously people haven't been using that as much. And so we're going to different routes, but um, glutathione obviously is a really big, big topic for us in all different kinds of modalities. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's, that's good. You had mentioned earlier about peptides. I would love to talk about that because I think you're a big fan of peptides from what I gathered. And so if you could talk more about that and how you use that in your practice. The way I talk to patients about peptides is that it's just another tool in the toolbox, right? That's, that's what I love about uh, functional medicine is that there's, there's so many tools in the toolbox. And I love talking to people who aren't aware of this. That's partly what I love about also having a foot in primary care is that, um, you know, there's a, a lot of folks who they thankfully haven't been sick enough today to deal with a lot of these, have to deal with these problems. But in those cases where they do become sicker, there's just a heck of a lot more tools in the toolbox than they would have known about otherwise, you know, or from another, another practice. So, so first of all, you know, I, I'm always sensitive to the cost factor and peptides are definitely more expensive for sure. And so, you know, the first question in my mind is how necessary is it? So I'll bring it up to, I may bring it up to the table because I don't want to assume things for patients. You know, they, everyone's got a different value system as to what's worthwhile or not. So um, it's definitely in the realm of, if you want to say immune boosting, definitely immune modulating, immunomodulation. And there's a particular peptide that we have historically just used a lot of, thymosin alpha-1. So, you know, why do I love that so much? It's got so much data behind it, right? So categorically, this is an opportunity to help patients be able to address the problems, whether they're tick-borne or mold toxins or whatever, quote-unquote, more naturally, because it is helping the body's immune system basically be- become stronger to be able to do the work itself. I'm not at a point at this you know, current time where I feel comfortable saying that this can do the job on its own. Mm-hmm. I don't know too many practitioners who do tout that, but I do know practitioners who practice in that style and are touting anecdotally success in that regard with some patients. But TA1, I just love, right? Because it's a pharmaceutical medication equivalent in other countries to treat hep C, all right? And, and hep B, and it's been marked by the FDA as being adjunct, uh, adjunct therapy for mm-hmm. HIV, three cancers, small cell cancer, to a certain kind of lung cancer. And so as a sort of bioidentical therapy, if you will, being a um, hormone, well, not a hormone, a peptide, sorry, of what we naturally make in our thymus gland, but we make less of as we go on in life, it's really just boosting our body to be able to go after bugs and toxins that live in our cells, intracellular pathogens and toxins. And it strengthens the innate immune system so strongly, which is why it's not a surprise that 
it has so much benefit for things like cancers because the innate immune system is so key identifying cancer and precancer cells as well as what are called senescent cells or aging cells, which age basically become like a whole nother pool of toxins as we get older. So um, the innate immune system is really the key. And so many more people are more aware of that now with the pandemic, right? When mm-hmm. we don't have a good frontline innate immune system defense, we become vulnerable to cancers, to inflammaging, right? Cellular aging due to chronic inflammation, to viruses, to toxins, et cetera. So TA1 is just so powerful with the innate immune system. It's, it's, I love it. And then mm-hmm. of course, BPC-157 and thymosin beta-4 are probably the, you know, two of the more, most common otherwise used. They have different, um, they all have their sort of different nuances, right? Uh, as to right. what they're, how they work and what they're beneficial for, which is, again, is what I love about it. I, I call these things mini stem cells a lot of times to patients to give them an idea of what I'm talking about, oh, you know, yeah. like regenerative medicine, but we can actually kind of get a better predictive expectation of what's going to come out of using that peptide versus that. Whereas, you know, if someone's getting an injection of stem cell therapy, it's, it's not so predictable, like, you know, what benefit you're really getting out of it. Right. Now those peptides, are you typically give them through injection or are they oral or are they through nasal? It all varies. The, the far majority are um, subcutaneous injections. They're like insulin needles. So they're really small. I, I just walk patients through it myself. I've even walked through 70 year olds on zoom or, you know, on a, a video yeah. platform. Yeah, I did it for a couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, how'd you do with it? Was it pretty easy for you? It was. And then I just like started getting so bruised from it. I don't know why. And then it just, you know, you know what the problem is I find is when you don't feel well, it's really hard to stick to something on a regular basis. You know, if it's taking all the vitamins, if it's taking, it's almost like a full-time job. Right. And so sometimes you're just like, I definitely found myself like avoiding taking my peptides (laughs) (laughs) because who wants to be stuck every day? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, so that's part of the downside, right? So everything's got pros and cons. Yeah. You know, thankfully, a lot of them, they're not, they're not necessarily things you have to be taking year round by any means. Yeah, no, a lot exactly. of them, they're cyclical, um, yeah. but there are some and more and more that are becoming oral, right? The technology is mm-hmm. advancing. And so, yeah, the downside is um, the FDA is really has been. Strict. Down. Yeah. I think California where I live, they, they've actually stopped distributing them. I don't think they can even be, I don't even think I can get them anymore, but I'm not sure I haven't tried. Yeah. But yeah, they've been, you know, anything that works, they seem to be going after. You had talked a little bit about hypercoagulation. Can you talk about that? I think it's kind of relevant too, because that's what's kind of happening with what's going on in the world. Yeah. So in the, uh, in the sort of what I call often called with patients of the lecture circuit, you know, or the conference circuit, if you will, um, this is a huge topic uh, for Dr. Ann Corson, who, you know, is a, a big, a big presence in this community of practitioners. Um, but, uh, you know, she always gives credit to the people who've put a lot of emphasis on this decades ago, David Berg and et cetera. So what I talk about with patients is this, the immune system. So for me, in the end, it really, a lot of stuff all funnels down to the immune system, which is why that three-part equation, you know, the exposome, if you've got a weak resiliency in the interface, then our immune system on the back end, just having to, it's just taking more of a beating, right? And again, like there's a surprising number of people who I'm finding even are as primary care patients who have some type of immune deficiency that they would have had never, never known about. So what happens is I, I talk to people all the time. The immune system is a twofold. Um, it has two components to it. Everyone thinks about the immune system as defense, right? Protecting us from whatever pathogens, toxins, et cetera. But the other arm of functionality is repair. If we have a wound in our leg, uh, if we have a, a cut on our leg, the reason it heals is because of your immune system. Well, part of healing and recovery and repair is 
creating sticky blood. It's, mm -hmm. it, I liken it to glue. Like if, you, if you're putting things together, you need the glue to do so, right? And so when the immune system is constantly on or agitated, aggravated, irritated, you know, when there's constant chronic inflammation, there's more likelihood that the immune system is not only trying to defend, but also it's creating a pro-coagulation state, a hypercoagulation state, mm -hmm. coagulation, you know, stickiness. So again, throughout the pandemic where I've been testing even primary care patients, I say, hey, you know, um, just with the pandemic and such going on, I'm offering to take a, you know, some kind of sneak peek at their immune system. And sometimes I'm throwing out like a D-dimer and fibrinogen just as a sort of shortcut to say, what's their blood stickiness like? Anything that's abnormal in those labs on D-dimer gets a flag as a critical abnormal from the lab. And like every two or three days, I was getting like a critical lab, you know, call from the, from the lab. And these are patients who are not having a blood clot, right? Wow. It's surprising how many people have abnormal D-dimers. I, I could have probably, I probably could collect all these numbers together and write a little paper just observationally like, hey, these are people who, these are not people who had concerns for a DVT or a, you know, pulmonary yeah. embolism. They're not in the ER, which we know. What was that from? What was that? Well, this is, this is, that's the thing. I, it, a lot of these folks, they're not with fibromyalgia. They're not with chronic fatigue, but they have some chronic health symptoms that are just manageable, right? They're a lower level, like in that mild, moderate, severe illness. There might be mm -hmm. like a mild illness person, but they don't even realize if I, it. If I go testing them for Lyme or whatnot, there's a, there's a decent chance I'm going to find it, right? Mm -hmm. They just weren't sick enough that they've complained about it or brought it to my attention or felt like they wanted to deal with it or whatever. Right. So I think it's a lot more common. My observation is it's a lot more common than people thought. And I think as you just alluded to, that's reflected by the COVID scenario, right? That's what I kept telling people for the whole last year, like as, as data was coming through, like, why are we getting COVID toes? Why are we getting blood clots in like all kinds of tissue specimens on autopsies for people who've died? Why are people not able to vent in the ICU back in a year ago, right? What's everyone's blowing all this air and we're, it turned out that the, you know, some of the early advocates saying we got to stop venting these people, much less putting all the air pressure. Cause it's kind of like creating trauma More, blowing yeah. up the air, air tissue. Yeah. The lungs. Yes. It's because the blood wasn't getting through because of the clots, right. In mm -hmm. part, we're getting 40 year olds with strokes. I mean, you know, what's all this about? It's because likely these people already had some underlying inflammation hypercoagulant yeah. state from some kind of source of chronic inflammation or as dr corson often says like you know there's a good percentage of people who have some genetic issue where they don't clot properly okay and right. that might lead to overclotting but bottom line is this this overclotting you know as evidenced by covid but also a lot of these biotoxin or you know tbd and maltoxin patients it is a big deal and i'll stop by just saying this topic by saying what often describe, illustrate to patients is, look, the commuter train brings people into Boston, right? And if the people in the train are like the nutrients and the commuter train is like your blood vessel and you're trying to get the nutrients into an office or a home in Boston, that's the end destination. So, so like I said, that's a tissue, like a muscle tissue, okay? Well, there's two nice illustration points, but number one is if the doorways of the commuter train are not opening and shutting properly, they are not opening widely enough, right? You're not going to get as many people and nutrients and out. Yeah. out exactly quickly enough before the doors close, right? So you're going to get less oxygen, less nutrition, blah, 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 to the end result, the end tissue, the muscle tissue. On the flip side, if the muscles, in this case, house, office, whatever, if they're trying to release toxins from all the work that's been going on there, 
right? Whether due to bugs or oxidative stress, et cetera. And that's got to go back in the train. And again, there's a stickiness of the doors. You're going to be left with extra toxin in the end tissue as well. So it's, it goes both ways. But in the end, if you think about it, if you're on a micro scale level, not getting nutrition to your muscles or your brain, like, and then on the flip side, you're also maintaining toxins there. No wonder people are dealing with chronic muscle fatigue mm-hmm. or you know, muscle pain or brain fog, you know, et cetera. It's like any tissue you want to talk about the nerves, right? If the nerves aren't getting adequate supply, that's a common, that's an even conventional medicine where we're talking about CAN, cardiac autonomic neuropathy, right? Where the mm-hmm. nerves don't get blood supply, the nerves become dysfunctional, inflamed, neuropathy yeah. develops, and then you develop all kinds of dysautonomias and all kinds of stuff. I mean, when you put all the links together, it's like the light bulbs just go on with you know, yeah. all the ontology that people deal with. So was there anything that you recommended to those people that you found out that didn't really even have symptoms that were in coagulating? Like, did you, is there anything that you gave them to kind of reverse that or to address it? So no one really wants to be on Coumadin, right? As a prescription. Yeah. And that's, uh, it looks kind of funny to be on that when people don't have a, a more conventional medicine reason for it. So yeah, the common thing that people are using is uh, lumbrokinase or, or some what's called a, um, a proteinase or um, something that basically it's an enzyme that breaks these things down. And so lumbrokinase is a, is a great one. I, you know, again, kudos to, you know, Dr. Corson. I, that's where I, um, I think I, you know, no, a lot of people in the Lyme world will have heard of lumbrokinase somewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. As a biofilm disruptor, but Dr. Corson specifically talks about a lot in context of for this hypercoagulation topics in specifically, there's a number of biofilm busters. So going back to the tick-borne and Lyme topic, right? There's a lot of biofilm busters of different categories. Some are sort of dual benefit where you are going to get benefit if you're a person who's hypercoagulated and other ones, other types are really just biofilm. They're not strong enough to really break down the crust oh, or the sticky blood. So lumbrokinase is touted by most practitioners um, that I've known to be the most potent. It's an enzyme that comes from earthworms. You know, there's a lot of other odds and ends about, you know, which companies make good ones and or bad ones, et cetera. But lumbrokinase is the most common. No, oh, that's good. Okay. That's good to know. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. I just read, I don't know if you've read the, the book Chronic that just came out, but they talk about, and there are a lot about the history of Lyme and whatnot. And one of the things they addressed was the history of the Lyme vaccine. And that was back in the eighties that was released. I think it was eighties or the nineties. And um, it didn't last long. And one of the reasons why was because there was a lot of side effects because when you took that Lyme vaccine, if you had Lyme and you didn't know it, you would have serious side effects. And they found that there were a lot of people that didn't realize like what you're talking about that had Lyme in their body because they didn't really have symptoms. And there was a lot more people walking around with Lyme than actually they knew. And so it kind of backfired on them because people already had Lyme in them and it was not a good combo with the Lyme vaccine because it just kind of made all the symptoms that much worse or come out. So it was kind of interesting that you you brought up that point. Yeah, I think I think that illustrates the point of what is sort of behind that sort of cures method approach that I have because I, you know, I for years have had patients say, like a family, right? Uh, and it's it's commonly a guy who's like saying, so I've got, there's five of us in the family and my wife and two two kids out of three have Lyme disease. Well, I'm rubbing my dog all the time. I'm taking the dog on just as many walks as everybody else, if not more. I've got ticks on me before. How come I don't have Lyme disease? You know, I want to be tested. After going through the rigor rigmarole of, okay, do you really want to get tested? You know, what, what are you going to do with the results and yada, yada. Then I'm, I've often been left with a task of trying to explain 
how come you know someone's got positive results and they don't have symptoms you know again like is this is is the lab like you know for real is it legit is it a false positive blah 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 and that's where historically we've always said to patients as a practice that there's more to the story than we understand does someone have diabetes or not other source of inflammation etc and now over time as we've identified that there's so much more to the story than you know just lyme or just mold toxicity etc this it's a big stew, as you said. I often like to use beef stew, and you said um, something similar to it, right? A big pot of something or another. Yeah, yeah. Just so big um, pot. <laughs> it's like a, a cumulative bucket, right? If, mm-hmm. if it takes up seven out of ten before people or some individual is going to have symptoms, then are they hanging out at a level five and six for decades before one more thing happens, and all of a sudden it triggers them past seven, and now their inflammation system is on and it's you know full swing. That's the picture that has developed, you know, I think in the community of practitioners over the last few years, for sure. Mm -hmm. So is there anything else you would like to talk about before we wrap up to to anybody who's listening about Lyme? Yeah, so we did briefly talk before that, um, you know, where where my passion right now is, is trying to help more people faster, right? There's, There's a real bottleneck where there aren't many practitioners and considering how many people are out in the country, right? I mean, or around the world for that matter, there's not that many practitioners who do this kind of work, as we all know. There's also, it can be costly for a lot of people. And mm-hmm. then finally, it's time consuming for the practitioners as well, because these are these are difficult cases, you know, that people are really sick. Even the lesser sick of the chronic complex patients are still really sick. So yeah, I'm I'm really passionate about having created. We're we're well into constructing a program to sort of find a win-win-win across those three boards, where we are going to be rolling out a basically a patient care program that's presented in a more of a group platform, like group visits, but virtual and um, you know across state lines. So it's a national program, and because of the group model it allows a significant scaling of cost to patients and it's hugely time efficient for the practitioners as well. And the, the hope here is that, uh, or the, I shouldn't say the hope, the, the absolute plan, um, having already networked with a number of practitioners around the country and getting a sense of, you know, who who's, you know, might be interested in and is already interested. The goal is not only to have a um, joint team collaborative effort on the practitioner side, as, again, as a group to help, you know, groups of patients, but also to be able to bring like, you know, really top, top thinkers and thought leaders from different worlds, you know, thought leaders in the Lyme world, thought leaders in the multitoxin world, thought leaders in the mast cell world, the immune system, immunology world, have them be able to almost like present like webinars or yeah, virtual webinars or summits, if you will, you know, whether it's a one time or if it's a series on an educational level, but like straight to the patients, right. And then be able to have the clinicians in this program be able to implement those diagnostic and treatment modalities for patients, you know, in a, in a, in a group format and also have those patients be able to have like a, an inherent support group that get that mm-hmm. developed out of it as well. So, um, you know, the, the thing I'm most passionate about that is just the fact that we can offer something that to really get people help faster and so much cheaper. I get so excited just talking about it with practitioners, you know, other colleagues, because um, everyone I've talked to has just been, super excited about it just as well. So, so yeah, that's, that's where my, that's where my future, my, my real near future passion lies. That's great. Now, if anyone wants to find you, what's the best place to find you? Yeah. So our, our practice in new report is more, um, you know, it's, it's a, again, it's a hybrid in, in, of primary care and consulting and it's um there's, there's some options there, but um, 
Yeah, probably my my personal site at um, Dr. Mark Sue, you know, drmarksu.com. It's more of just a kind of like more of a landing site. And, um, you know, getting a hold of me through there is, is pretty straightforward. Getting, getting a hold of me through our practice is a little bit more of a, um, you know, there's, we've got a lot more going on. So just reaching me directly is probably easier through the drmarksu.com site. Perfect. Dr. Sue, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been very informative and yeah. I really appreciate everything you're doing for the Lyme community. Well, I mean, Mimi, you're, you're out there like, you're, you're doing a heck of a lot or more than a lot of the, us as practitioners, you know, for sure. I mean, you're, you're doing a lot of work and, you know, so it's great when there are spitfires out there like yourself to, because there's got to be a lot of patient advocacy that's, um, that's necessary that practitioners don't have the bandwidth or don't have the interest, unfortunately, or, you know, whatever, just it's, it, it requires, it, it takes a village. We all know it that. It does take a village. And I think with all of us kind of going in the right direction, we'll, we'll get there and hopefully save some lives and money and aggravation for a lot of people to reduce it. So they don't have to go through what a lot of us have gone through. Yeah. So, but for thank sure. you so much. Yeah. My pleasure. Each week, I will bring you different voices from the wellness community so that they can share how they help their clients heal. You will come away with tips and strategies to help you get your life back. Thank you so much for coming on, and I am so happy you are here. Subscribe now and tune in next week. If you want to learn how I detox and you want to check out my Detox for Lyme checklist, go to Lyme360.com forward slash detox checklist. You can also join our community at Lyme360 Warriors on Facebook, and let's heal together. Thank you.